show. Welcome to the Automation Impact Podcast. My name is Edward Shlepetsky. I'm CEO of Active Automation Company and UiPath Most Valuable Professional. This is the first season of episodes in which, together with other UiPath MVPs and RPA experts, we will be covering best practices in end-to-end RPA implementation from center of excellence enablement up to successful scaling. So I would highly recommend project champions and other managers who are currently building center of excellence to stay tuned. To learn more about the podcast, visit us on automationimpact.io and don't forget to subscribe. In this episode, together with Frank Shikora, we discuss operating model. This is a core of scalable center of excellence and there are many aspects to consider. Therefore, we split this episode into two parts. Now you are listening to part one. Second part you will be able to find on our website once published. For now, please enjoy the episode. Three, two, one, we go. Hi, everybody. Today we are discussing operating model with Frank Shikora. Uh, who is head of delivery at Roboyo and also UiPath most valuable professional. Before we jump into operating model, I would like, uh, Frank, if you can give a short background to our audience about yourself, what was your RPA journey and what brings you to, to current role? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So first of all, glad to be here, glad to talk about this really interesting topic, I would say. Um, so my name is Frank Schikora. Um I come from Germany and at the moment I'm working at Roboyo as the head of delivery as you already mentioned. So when um, maybe first thing a little bit about me, myself and my background. Um, so I'm a business informatics master um, and first started in um, working in IT operations actually. So um, on the question of how did I start with automation, I already did some automating there but without um, any RPA. Um, project or any RPA help in this case. Um, so then afterwards, um, I actually started three, yeah, almost a little bit over three years ago now, um, working at Roboyo, um, and started working with UiPath. So this was the beginning of my RPA journey. I think this was quite a different time then. I think UiPath was like 80 people back then. Now they are somewhere, I, I think, 4,000 or something. <laughs> also quite a different product. It was quite, it was quite interesting to see how all of that grew, right? Um, so what does head of delivery actually mean when I talk about what I do in my day today? Um, I'm here to ensure the quality of the automations we deliver to our clients, right? That they are here to the best practices um, agreed upon in the RPA space and especially um, tied to your iPod. I also try to keep up with um, all the new innovation your iPod is bringing out and with all the new technology and the new, um, yeah, in the end parts of the um, end-to-end automation journey, which we are all on, right? And you have mentioned there uh, that you you are currently to ensure the quality of delivery before getting to that point for how long you were the part of delivery so how how many projects you did back in the past or or you maybe you measure it in months years etc how how was your journey to this point of actually controlling the quality yeah so um at first when i started like i said i came out of it operations so i think the first hmm. let me think three months i guess um, were based more on the infrastructure side, right? So setting up the orchestrator at that point, the 2016.1, I think it still was, right? 
with a nice PowerShell script um, and then helping um, customers get started on their journey. Um, but this quickly shifted because the infrastructure setup most of the time is quite easy, right? And it's done um, pretty fast. So this was when I um, got into the actual delivery of the project at the start as an automation engineer, right? So I had some strong background in um, VB.NET and VBA and some other scripting languages. So I think the, the process was quite nice, right? The onboarding was quite nice. Back then there was um, not such a good academy, so it was a little bit more self-taught, but it was still pretty easy to, to learn in the end. Um, then, yeah, I, I think it was a pretty pretty common um, pretty common way for me, right? Um, I started delivering my own projects, then with a project manager, with a project lead, then I got a little bit more into the lead role, right, where I had a team um, of developers. Um, and led them on, on a bigger project. Um, I think this was a team of five at, at the biggest project that I did, right? And then I um, got more and more into the role of actually um, oversight, the methodology and all the other stuff, but I'm still delivering projects from time to time myself. And I think it's also a good practice to not get out of practice. Got it. So when you say uh, deliver the projects, you still also write the code or you are more on SDD level, like architect level? Are you still to open and uh, to open studio and sometimes build something or it is more now on architecture and more thinking about like solution design, etc.? It's more on the side of the solution architect, but I still do open the studio and, and deliver code parts mostly myself, right? or help other developers as part of the project lead, right? In the, um, for once with the architecture, but then also if there are questions come up on, um, yeah, more difficult problems. And I think it's, it's, in the end, it's pretty important, to be honest, um, to not get too out of touch, right? Only think about the, the big architectural stuff, but also get into the nitty gritty, into the engine room and do some things yourself, especially at the pace that your hypothesis um, is evolving right now, right? I think, um, only doing it on a conceptual level will just not work. Absolutely. And uh, I'm also remembering my times when in 2017, 2018, I was also shifting from like development role more into solution architect role. Um, what is a lot about, you know, like the solutioning, a lot about coordinating also people, etc. I still, nowadays, <laughs> I still sometimes enjoy the times when I open the code and, and, and just do something myself, you know, like truly uh, writing code myself because it, it I fully agree with you that it helps you, first of all, to keep up with the latest updates, with the trends, etc., as well as uh, regardless of how the, my business develops, etc., I still, just as an exercise for the brain, truly enjoy coding. So for you, as a having technical background also from, from like university, etc., I think that this is also one of the things you must also just prefer and like yourself, right? So it is not something just your job requiring, but probably even if you would have it less in your current position, do you do some coding besides uh, RPA? Or, or uh, if you, for example, are in a project... Uh, for a longer time when you are just to coordinate, etc. Do you do coding just yourself or, or this probably exploring yeah, of, of, of new features, etc.? How does it work for you? So most of the time it's, it's the explorative part, 
right, where I um, take a look at the new technologies, then um, see in the Insider program, right, what uh, iPath delivers to us um, and see how, how it actually works. Then conjunction, right, the same with all the um, new community updates to be up to date when the new um, fast track support, long term support comes out to actually have the customers, right, consult the customers correctly on when to update, what to update and where to update. Um, and I only recently started again to do um, some actually UiPath coding at home for um, actually like the invoices when you go grocery shopping and that stuff, right? So we're still writing a book at home, right? Where you put in every expense, not even an Excel table. <laughs> um, and I'm now automating that, right? With um, scanning it in, reading it out with OCR and then um, automating that. I'm doing that with UiPath and with the newly added, the OmniPage OCR, which works quite well in that case. It, it will be turning in quite traditional question, but I must ask you uh, still the same. Um, did you ever, were you ever on the other side of, of, of this business? Were you ever doing some manual uh, or data entry positions, etc.? Or after university and after studying the technical stuff, you directly went to evolve your skills and you are in programming from the very beginning of your uh, work or, or your professional journey? So did you ever do this manual and repetitive stuff within some of your positions? I think everybody had at some point in their in their um, professional career some um, manual labors, right? So I started directly in IT, but even in IT, right, you have you have maybe Excel or so we had um, something, we had a ERP mi migration, right? And if I had known at that time, right, about RPA, this could have been something, something different because yeah, you can build the tables and we did this. But in the end, some of the, um, of the data, right, of the master data did not migrate correctly. And then you had to do it by hand, right? And those are definitely yeah. some parts yeah. where I would say now that RPA could have helped me in, in those cases, right? But I was never in a, in a position where I had to do real, let's call it real data entry. No. And talking of MVP role, what was your journey to, to that point? Because um, in my understanding, it is something when you are, first of all, definitely doing quite well in your company, but this is something what is uh, getting you out of company as well. It is the higher, higher level recognition. What brought you to this position? Like what, what's your journey beha behind MVP role? So um, I think one of the important parts about the MVP is also that it's part of a, of a community effort, right? So I was um, pretty active on the forums um, for a good while and until my work got a little bit in the way of that. Um, I was also recently part of the Reboot Your Skills program and helped out a lot, um, being it in the in the office hours, in the webinars, and then also in the forums to get people re-onboarded. Re I think this is a big part of it, right? The community of your iPath and then giving and also receiving, right? I think this is this is a a huge benefit to your iPath, right? And what they, they do a lot better than most of the competitors in this case. Um, so this was one part. Um, the other part was also then I developed some uh, custom activities for Go, right? This is also a kind of recognition where you can um, can sound then out um, a little bit from, from the crowd. And then um, I just applied to, um, to be honest, to become an MVP, right? Because I think this would be an amazing opportunity um, to, yeah, give back, Again, like you, like we do now, right? Maybe in podcast information, share uh, a little bit more knowledge um, with the community. You know? And in the end, there was a, um, a process which we both got through, right? <laughs> um, with some interviews, questions, yeah. And, yeah. yeah. 
Um, and so to, to summarize, you mentioned two main uh, points. It is the engagement with the community, not through forum or any other ways as, as reboot your skills. For me, it was also an amazing experience and uh, I would definitely be part of it again. And uh, also you, you have developed some components on Go, which also is a contribution to community because nowadays anyone can go on, uh, go on and take those components and reuse in their automations. Besides these two points, so community engagement and, and sharing of, of know-how, is there anything else what you would recommend to your so-called successors, if we are to speaking about next MVP wave, etc.? What would you recommend to community to get to this MVP role? Is there anything else besides these two points? I mean, surely a, a deep technical understanding in my mind, right? Of the product, of what is there, what you can do with the product, right? Because I think part of it is also what we do as Roboyo, right? Um, and then also me in, in, in case of this, is um, deliver quality automations and automations that are best suited for the customers, right? With the, um, with the best technical abilities out there. And I think the other part is really believing in the product, um, which I think is at the moment quite easy because your iPad is in my mind. I really believe that um, the best RPA product at the moment on the market, right? I think this is this is something. This is not like um, I have to say that I just really I firmly believe that to be true. So now we are slightly moving into the topic itself. So we have to speak about the operating model, what I consider as a core whenever any RPA project starts. And before actually talking to you, I captured the a quote from Wiki saying that an operating model is both an abstract and visual representation of how an organization delivers value to its customers and uh, as well as how organization actually runs itself. Yeah. So this is quite generic statement, which is applicable to operating model in any kind of business. But here are two questions from my end. Uh, what is operating model in your understanding as well as more specific, what is operating model in RPA context? So I think, I think for the first part, if we're talking, what is my understanding of an operating model? Like, like you already mentioned, an operating model is almost always at the core or should be at the core. I think we will um, talk a little bit more about this later. Should be at the core of every RPA initiative, right? In my mind, Without an, um, a really good thought out operating model, there cannot be success in an RPA initiative, right? And when we talk about the, the wiki, right, the abstract and visual representation, I, I think operating models in, in terms of how I understand them are not really abstract, but they are um, core guidelines, right, on how to um, really um, service your RPA initiative, right? So I think the operating model in the end is the biggest part and the most influential part of the end-to-end -end automation. I don't think it is manageable with, with, without one, right? So there might have been a, a time where we said, ah, operating model, mm, yeah, it's nice to have. I think we are at the moment seeing that it's not a nice to have, but it's a must have, right? Um, big part of helping RPA to scale, right? Um, especially if we're now talking about, and we'll be later on talking a little bit more about onboarding citizen developers, right? I think what the operating model does is really encapsulates everything um, that is RPA, give it structure, give it a, yeah, a sort of direction, meaning and help to really steer that towards a better yeah, goal in the end, right? Um, in the end, you always have some sort of ops model, right? It's just always a matter of if you're, if you're really defining it out or not, right? Because your operations will run somehow, right? 
you might have a robot running in production. You yeah. might know how yeah. it got there. You might not know how it got there, right? So some sort of ops model is always there. I think the important part now that we're seeing more and more, is especially if you want to have RPA on a bigger scale, is uh, that you need yeah a really defined operating model, right? So a little bit of who does what, when, and with what purpose if we want to encapsulate this in a yeah, in a little easy sentence. I have I have a two core related questions to what you have just mentioned. So we were speaking about like operating operating model is nice to have, and then later we switch it where I fully agree that it is must have for every every organization who is which is implementing RPA. But just to challenge that statement, um, do you is in your understanding, is there any excuse or any situation in which um, operating model is not must-have? Or what would be the cases where you don't need it? So in my mind, this would only be if you say, yeah, I will have, I don't know, one studio and two robots and I have two processes and I don't want to have anything more, right? And yes. I may be even running it out of my business department, right? And again, we will talk about this a little bit more later, not from a central point, and I just want to have those two robots. Then I yes. guess you don't yeah. need an operating model. But every time you need some, well, not you need, but you want to have something on, a, on an enterprise or even on a company scale, right? Not always, not everything always have to be like enterprise big, right? But even on a, on a small to medium company level, right? There is an ops model yeah. needed. Um, especially because, yeah, you can have those two robots running. But what is it when you don't get notified about updates to um, applications, right? Or whatever you have. Surprise, surprise then. Yeah, in my mind, there is no excuse to have an ops model. <laughs> yeah, got it. Got it. And the second core related question with that is sometimes um, I, I don't judge if it is right or wrong approach, we will speak about it later. Sometimes uh, there is an intention just to start somehow and later we will sort out the operating model. And correlated question with that would be, what is the right time to design the operating model? So I would say in an ideal ideal world, right? You would start your RPA initiative, like, like I said, we will talk about this more in detail later, but um, you will start your RPA journey with really defining out an ops model, right? I know that this is not always possible, but to be honest, we're coming out of a world, right, where RPA had to prove itself, right? We were always talking about pilots and POCs and uh, does it really bring value? I think with how the RPA market has been developing, right, I think most of the people understand now that RPA has value behind it, right? And we don't, um, we are not always, again, in the situation where we have to do a pilot, do a POC, right? We are more often now coming into um, companies that say, okay, we want to have an RPA initiative. Where do we start? Right. And yeah. I think this is, this is a big paradigm shift at the moment. Right. So before, yeah, you could say, yeah, let's, let's start. Let's see if the robot runs. And if it runs, then yeah, well, it's good. But now we know that robots are running. Right. We know that it, um, RPA can bring value to, um, to a company. And if we are going from that direction, then I would say start with the operating model and not put it on later. And especially in these times when, if we consider now the coronavirus situation, I think that besides all these generic statements about FTE saving, what is not the only goal of RPA, but as of now it was more and more shifting to quality and employee satisfaction, etc. Now there was another huge 
uh, word mentioned around this uh, RPA topic, which was BCP, business contingency, right? Where if customers implemented their uh, RPA, if they automated processes, for us, we seen zero effect related with coronavirus, meaning that processes as they were executing the, the yesterday, same was today, meaning that people went working from home, someone didn't have a screen, someone didn't have a la- proper yeah. laptop, etc. Connections, internet, we can have a long list of it, but robots are just lo- lying on the servers and just doing what it's supposed to do without any effect. No, it is uh, some virus and pandemic, nor it's some uh, climate issues or revolution in a country or whatever. I think that another very strong argument added just recently and added not in wording, you know, if we are just to speak about this from theoretical point of view this is one thing but another thing seeing it in practice in, in practice in practice how it works was amazing for me seeing we have over 100 processes automated for one of our customers and workload was regular or in some cases even grown and it was handled without any you know like additional even attention to it we just look back the numbers and say okay here it's a little bit grown but actually there was zero effort to sustain this thing so this is another strong argument which adds also to the fact you say that it is now uh, yeah and it is very interesting point of view that it is now not anymore about just pocs and pilots but really directly straightforward into implementation thank you very much that's this is very interesting point here Good. And talking of operating model, I'm curious, what was your first experience with operating model? When was the first time you heard those words and where you were back then? So were you the one to set it up? Were you one of developers? Were you the architect back then? What was your role and what was your first time you heard these uh, words and how? what role did you play back then? So um, when we go to that, um, so I think the first experience this was uh, back in 2017, if I remember correctly, right? Um, this was what I mentioned before, the project lead with the five um, developers that was a, at the big German bank. Um, and I don't know if we really called it an ops model back then, right? I am not 100% sure if we call it operating model, but this was where we set up the, the governance, right, surrounding that. I mean, you can you can call it ops model, you can call it governance, all, all, um, all being that, Governance is part of the operating model, right? So, but in the end, what we have established back then, um, with my help and also with the project liaison in the, in the bank itself, right, was we established which kind of services we provide as the, um, as the RPA COE, right? So what do we do for the business units? It was not, it was a centralized COE at that time, right? What tools are we um, working with, right? So how do we do the support? How do we do the ticketing? What SLAs are behind that? How are we monitoring, um, right, the, the success of the RPA initiative, right? So what KPIs do we have? How do we monitor the infrastructure? How do we make sure that everything is working according to um, what we want it to be, right? Um, then also um, the strategy and vision. I think this is always an important part the, the so when we're talking about operating model, right, it's, it's always so like, yeah, like the word says operational, right? But I think strategy yeah. and vision is a big part of the operating model, right? Where do you want to go? And also, um, where does the, the company want to go with RPA in terms of RPA, right? How do we want to grow it? Where do we want to grow it? How fast do we want to grow it, right? 
um, with internal resources, external resources, and I think this was something that was quite key in the, in that phase, right? And then also set up the the complete governance, right? Because you always had the part about the um, PDD and the DSD, which was called something something different over there, but in, in the end it's the same, right? Um, so just setting up the, the complete package, so to speak, this was back in, in early 2017. Yeah, and quick quick question from my end. Was it already on behalf of Roboyo or you were direct yes. employee? Okay, got it. And another question is, back in 2017, I can imagine the difference between what we have nowadays about the operating model, all the standards, etc. And back then, it's, it's over three years as of now. Um, you you mentioned a lot of things as a KPIs as a as a model itself like cooperation with resources probably the stakeholders as well etc. Um, based on what like was it more like brainstorming format and looking on some other operating models in other businesses or I don't know C sharp implementation etc. What was the core for you to create the first one? Yeah, so you you mentioned a lot of aspects and was it like in friendly conversation with the customer or internal Roboya brainstorming when you were saying okay we need to don't forget about this that then you call some more experience and call colleague and he also at some points etc what was the base for creating it where did you start yeah so in the end right when we're talking about rpa at those times we were thinking about rpa also let's call it a service right an internal service and this is basically where we base the um the first internal draft of the model on right so this yeah. is always something if you want to create an internal um, it service right Mm -hmm. Those are also the points you need to, to mention in every normal IT service, right? And what we wanted to do was bring RPA out of the shadows, so to speak, right? So it's operating somewhere under the radar, right? Because at some points it's just easier. You don't need to talk to IT security, to the HR department, to whatever, right? And you can just do your thing. And what we really wanted to do there was bring it to light with a mature model, right? That really shows that um, RPA is not some kind of backroom technology, which we do not want to see the whole organization, but this is something we want to see the whole organization, right? And we want the whole organization yeah. to see it. This was in the end the, the start, right? And this is also where we then, we have over 100 processes live now, I think, um, at that um, at that customer, right? And obviously we evolved the model over time, but for the start, this did us a great service because we had the, yeah, the cornerstones in place, right? Where we can say, yeah, we bring value, right? We have the defined um, SLAs, we have the right tools in place um, to reach the right people. Yeah. Were you the only one who was back then uh, developing the operating model at Roboyo or there were several teams working in parallel on it or you were collaborating? My question is like, after you did it with this bank back in 2017, was it something what became a core at Roboyo for the best practices and later, of course, was upgraded with your colleagues, etc.? Or it was one off? Like, how was your collaboration? And I assume that still you did the big contribution also to Roboyo standards back then. So how how later the product which you created with this bank customer went uh, or was spread uh, along the other customers as well? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, um, this was one of the um, the projects that, that I was most involved in, right? And um, the other part about that is, right, this ops model, like we see the services, tools, monitoring, etc., right? This was at the beginning a little bit more technical focused, right? 
And this is obviously yeah. something that we expanded then over time, right? When we see the RPA initiatives evolving over time, there's also need for more strategy and vision, more governance is also something we will talk about uh, later a little bit more, right? About roles and responsibilities and all that stuff. Because um, at that time, the COE um, on the customer side, right, um, consisted of three persons, right? And there the roles and responsibilities were pretty clear cut. So there was no um, like big talk about this, but this is obviously, again, if we're talking about scale, this is obviously something now that is looks completely different from what we did back then. Okay. And how many times since then you were in this exercise again and again? So how many times you were setting up or later after it is still some, some extent already built, how many times you were replicating this model with obviously every time adding some new and some better upgrades? How many times you were doing that? So I think it was not even that many anymore. I think maybe five or six times, um, because to be honest, uh, at some point, um, we at Roboyo grew enough to really add um, a separate team for, for the consulting part, right? And now I'm more on the technical delivery side and my colleagues from the consulting team do now more of the, um, of the operating model building, right? I'm still um, yeah. involved, but it's not my, my main focus anymore, so to speak. So, but I would say... Um, You're always in there, right? And if you're a project lead, even if you're the technical project lead, there will always be overlap and you will always help in, in building out the, the, the COE, right? But obviously the approach is, is a lot different now than it was back then. Got it. I, and I'm curious about this. So you were mentioned about like five, seven times afterwards. Um, my question is, what did you find really interesting in the way, like when it was changing? What Any any interesting highlights and, and, and things to mention there? So what... What was maybe someone on the go surprising you? Maybe it was on the third uh, third time you're doing it, fifth time, etc. Any interesting highlights? And when I say interesting, I'm sure like operating model is a huge topic and there is a lot of interesting things actually. What I mean here is what were there any things which surprised you? Um, so I think the most interesting parts or um, discussions we always had were with clients with high security standards or demands for for the, for the documentation, right? So we we're talking about banks, insurances, um, and the likes. So because you have so many different stakeholders in so many different divisions, right? And there could be even the talks, right, when we're talking about the infrastructure monitoring, right? Um, at some points, you have a database team, right? You have a VM team, you have someone else for the firewalls, you have someone else for the security, someone else. Um, for, so for every role, right, there is an, another head. And to get them all together and then agree on something, this was always um, kind of interesting at some point. Um, there's also sometimes it was super interesting to see how... Um, Overblown, I would, I would call it the documentation sometimes is. There was a one client where we had, um, kind of their, their PDD, right? And only with headlines, we had, I think, 75 pages, which should have been in the PDD. And this is obviously something where we then tailored it a little bit down, right? Because, um, yeah, this, this was just a little bit, bit much. And I think those are the, the, the interesting parts of building out the, the, um, ops model is to, especially if you involve IT or you have um, already established standards, is to um, mold them and build them to a way which does not um, hinder RPA, right? I think this is still a big part. RPA can still be delivered really, really fast. And I think one of the important parts about the ops model is not to do everything like it is, right? 
because then in the normal um, IT projects, right, when we're talking about the banks and insurances, right, we're talking about six months or a year's worth of projects, right? This is still not something we want to have in RPA. And I think those are the parts where you can do the most work and have to do the most um, yeah, convincing at some points, right? And have the most interesting discussions to um, really get people to believe that still, if you're cutting down a little bit, if you're tailoring it a little bit, it will still be a viable option, right? And it still will um, yield the correct results and it will still be auditable ahead of correct governance and all that stuff, right? Absolutely. And if, if, if to describe the operating model, I think that, and, and I'm curious if you agree here, uh, I think that this is something what slows your project down on the very beginning to dramatically speed it up later and to dramatically scale it up later. Because you may start, def you definitely can start faster without, you know, like you just can start take a studio and start building and etc. So I think that this is same thing for development standards. It is something what slows you down on the very beginning later to give you the power of scaling, the speed of implementation and actually get rid till some extent uh, of the headache of maintenance just from the day one kind of absolutely i mean what we sometimes faced was right we came in to already establish project for a customer um but they did not speak like from a business side of you right and they did not speak with it right and then they made it aware of it and then you have to get into the discussions about the um the uh, users for the robots and all that stuff and all of a sudden IT is not as open anymore as they would have been maybe if they would have been involved um, from the beginning right and I think like you said it will take some time to set up right but also it is the only way if you set it up to really scale your operation later on without it it will just not work that's it's that easy if you want to have more than five processes running you need an ops model. That, that's my absolute and clear belief. Yeah. And I think that partially also, uh, I don't know if, if you remember and if you experienced the same things, but there was the wave speaking about that RPA is failing. And I think that the big contribution to this failing was behind the statements that uh, build a robot is easy. What I fully agree, to build a robot is easy. And it was just proved in Reboot Your Skills program. You can go to academy, spend 20 hours there and build your first robot, etc. But what was not communicated back then was to build a robot is easy, but to build a robot factory, what I call like center of excellence, what I just call like to build a robot factory is not that easy and you need to differentiate when you build a robot. What can you do, you know, like your afternoon hours or at home, you can build a robot for Facebook, etc. Or when you build a center of excellence where you need to have all this competence. Because one of the, I remember this wrong selling slogans of RPA. First first one was about the FT saving that it, it will, you know, release a lot of people and it would be, you know, like you don't need any more your employees. And then another one was that RPA doesn't require coding. Just give it to business people, give it to five finance department and finance department will uh, replace those, them same with the robots and go home or you know like I think that very wrong statements were about how easy it is to implement what is right for a single robot and what is very wrong when you are to scale the solution and here I have a related question with that I'm curious about your failures and uh, I mean not not maybe failures but if you can name one or two what you may do differently if you are back then or 
What were there any failures in your journey in your uh, seven operating models? What were those failures? Big, small? What would you do different? I think um, one of the biggest parts is I underestimated the importance of ops models for for some time. To be honest, right? Because um, in the start, like you mentioned, you were starting; it was working good, right? And I think one of the most important parts, which is covered by the ops model, is the run part, right? The maintenance part, and it's always a big, um, a big, uh, not failure, but a big problem, right? If you spend more time maintain, maintaining your robots than actually creating new value. And I think this is one of the parts where at some point, I'm not really sure if this was um, like a huge failure, but this is something that um, was maybe not considered enough. To be honest, right? In, in, in some of the, um, ops models we, uh, or I built out in the beginning, the support part. This is something I, I learned, um, pretty quickly, but <laughs> I had to learn that, um, in the end, building the robot is one important part, right? And you have to build for quality. I think this is also something like you mentioned before. Building a robot is easy, yeah, but there's still differences between, um, let's say, an experienced RPA developer and someone who just did um, two weeks of, of the academy program. I, I still think there is a, a huge difference, actually, right? But then also um, considering the maintenance and also building for that, right? Building for the run and support. I think this is um, one thing that is, that is really, really important. Otherwise, it can um, stall out, right? And this is something that we really do not want. Like you said, some of the um, of the initiatives failed from the start. Um, I, I don't think this has happened to me, but like I said, I think one of the biggest yeah regrets I have is not um, putting an important part on the support as it should have been. I think this one is one of the important learning. Got it. And before, now we are slightly moving already to the more academic description of operating model and we would be speaking about what parts it consists of, etc. Very last question before we go there. Your first operating model creation back in 2017 for a bank customer and your operating model setup tomorrow for, I don't know, the new customer you are facing, what what is the difference like what were the big changes and and of course there are very there are a lot of small changes but i'm curious what significantly changed since the first operating model to operating model number eight or nine or seven i think one of the the um, most important parts um, about changing operating models at the moment is that it's more um, for us at least more about automation and not really about rpa exclusively anymore right what we are not doing at the moment um, anymore is like building um, a targeted RPA automation model, so to speak, right? Operation model, right? RPA is part of it, right? But we are always talking now, now more about automation because we are also talking more about end-to-end -end automation, right? So we are already um, taking the intelligent automation, right, um, within it. So being at different technologies like BPM or intelligent OCR, something like this. This is also part of the ops model building and also part of the strategy and vision. I think this is one of the important, also important changes, right? I, I told you the first one was pretty technology focused and it was good, right? To, to get um, the, the model up and running. But now when we really start from scratch, we're talking about strategy and vision and the overall automation. And this means more than just RPA, right? We're looking at the end-to-end -end methodology in the end. So we're talking about which tools do we have, which people do we need, and what skills do they need, right? How is our structure? How do we want to actually structure 
the, the um, operating model and the COE behind it. What is the methodology? I think this is also one of the most important parts to have a clearly defined methodology in place. The governance, obviously, like compliance and the documentation. And then also um, giving kind of an enablement, right, for the internal COE to um, yeah to actually deliver the value themselves at some point, right? So we, we make them kind of independent from us um, yeah, at, at some point, or at least that's, that's almost always the goal. Hey there, are you enjoying this episode? If so, I have one kind request to you. Please share this episode with at least one person who it may be relevant to. This would help a lot in podcast development. Thank you. To summarize, maybe what what I understand, if on a higher level it get much wider as it was from from the very beginning, like on the very beginning it was quite focused on achieve the goal of I don't know the automation itself, but as of now it get it got much wider in terms of collaborating and integrating with uh, ecosystem of the company and when i say ecosystem of the company it means people uh, technical aspect applications new technologies even outside of the company like what are the new technologies and this it got much wider vision behind it and you already mentioned some of the aspects there so i must ask you now if we are to draw on a high level like main like operating model consists of what would be the the, the the few things you would name here? What comes to your mind when, when you hear operating model? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, like you said, I already mentioned a part of it. So um, the parts of the operating for me, the important parts, again, strategy and vision, right, for the um, overall automation journey, right? And in, in the strategy and vision, it's also important to have one thing that we always see is like you have to have... Um, a senior level stakeholder, um, right, or a sponsor, someone who actually who really believes in the journey, because otherwise it might still be fizzled out. Because there will be backlash, there will be people who don't want to see it or succeed, right. So you need someone to help push through, right. If you um, if you yeah, are driving against a wall somewhere, right. And I think this is this is really important um, to have. Then. When we are talking about the methodology, I think right now what we think is important to have an overall end-to-end methodology, right? And with that, we're talking about tools. And tools is not only like, um, I, I mean, obviously it's the RPA tool, right? Then, But then also um, the reporting tools, be it something like Elasticsearch, be it something like Insights, Power BI, does not matter, right? But it's important that it's there. You need to have a clear understanding of the people and their roles and responsibilities, Right, and what is what is needed for the start, um, and what might be uh, what what might come later. Right, what we always see is um, a small CUE, like I mentioned before, like uh, maybe two or three people. If you really want to scale an operation, can be difficult, right? Because the people might be just then overworked and overwhelmed with everything that is coming on. Because if we are cast, casting a wider net, right. This also means that there are a lot more topics you need to consider in terms of security compliance and all that other stuff. But um, let's go uh, through that then. Um, methodology, super important. Um, so this is the delivery methodology. And with that, there also comes the best practices. I think this is really then the implementation part or the implementation side of the things, right? Um, from a governance side, this is also really important to um, be in line with the compliance, right, and have the correct documentation in place. Yeah. Um, 
And I think one thing that, that is always a little bit forgotten, but it's also a really important part, is the, the service offering, right? Um, so something, do you only do the support? Do you write the PDDs for the business or is it in their responsibility to write the PDDs, right? Um, do you offer trainings? Maybe if we're talking about the citizen developer program, um, and also really define out the SLAs and um, so the service level agreements for your um, for your uh, automations, right? And then also make sure that you can deliver them. I think this is something which is oftentimes a little bit difficult, right? Where you have um, yeah some some application or some process where everybody says it needs to run 24/7 right and this must always be available but when you really come down to it what 24/7 really means then it gets awfully quiet oftentimes um and this brings me back to the next part of the operating model which would be infrastructure right i think this is also a really important part if we're talking about the RPA or the automation infrastructure but then also the the rest of the infrastructure right Because what we want to do now with the with the operating models is is really to establish RPA as a seriously as a serious technology in the IT stack, right? And this is something I think that was missing before, right? Where you oftentimes had the IT departments like, ah, oh, yeah, we know RPA well. It's been here for 20 years, green scraping. Yeah, yeah, I know it, right? And now we can really come out and and say, yeah, but I, I think we have something different here, right? And I think we can do something different. Huh? Um, I think this is a really important part. Um, the last part for me, um, for the important um, high-level overview, would be the culture, right? And culture would, for one point, be the change management process, right? Um, so how do you really establish RPA? And then, but also, it is really important to get into um, yeah a mindset also for the businesses, right? To really want to drive um, innovation and automation, right? Because in the end, if you really um yeah if you cannot inspire the people right uh, i mean we will um, talk about this again later but you also have to build the pipeline somehow right and if you cannot motivate people to see that rpa will benefit them right it will be difficult to actually do something which you are not um yeah if you don't want to get go through every process yourself which is not possible right absolutely and the next question in my list is um If we are to draw a timeline on a high level implementing the operate model, how it would look like. But considering how many things you named, I'm afraid that this would be the material for a separate podcast itself. Just this question uh, for the separate episode, just this question itself. So I would jump direct, directly into the next one because I think that the question which I just mentioned would be answered along our episode while we speak. I think that we will be realizing more and more on the timeline where and what appears. So out of many things you have mentioned, I'm curious of, you know, and I used to ask this question also for development uh, standard uh, episode, if we, we definitely can bring a operating model to several levels, like must have the very basic minimal things you must have without which you should not start off, then some golden middle where you can say that okay this is okay-ish this 80-20 serves most of the customers most of the companies etc and then we are getting to very advanced and quite often fancy um, very nice to have features yeah and and so-called advanced operating model so 
maybe starting with the basic one what is must must have out of all these things and to tailor it down i i remember working with my mentor back in the past we were always saying like okay write 10 priorities and then shrink it down to three shrink it down to one i would ask maybe four must haves in operating model uh, creation like very very basic yeah okay if we want to put it down to four for me that would be um the methodology right but this might also be a little bit biased because <laughs> this is the most important part for me but i really believe that um a clear methodology right of how you structure your projects and how you deliver them is, is really really important and for me is a must same goes for the best practices because if you do not have the best practices in the start right we're talking about the rpa programming right so again, this might be a little bit biased, but for me, methodology and best practices are a must to start because otherwise, later on, when you want to scale, right, you will have different um, types of programming, different templates, everything will be different and consolidating it down later on is much more painful than just, um, and, and I think a methodology and best practices are not something that is is rocket science, to be honest, right? You have to have a clear model for um, the phases you do in the in the methodology, right? And the best practices also, right? When we're talking about RPA, this is not rocket science, but it's, it's needed in, in my mind, right? You need to have a clear documentation, right? So being at the PDD, DSD, and it needs to be aligned within um, the company standards. I think this is also important to have something... Because later on, if, if, if someone from compliance or at some point this will come and you need to have the clear and proper documentations in place to um, be able to withstand an audit, right? And not have the program shut down at some point. Yeah. Yeah. So we name, we, we name methodology, we name methodology, we name best practices and we name documentation. We, there is one, one more thing. And I know there is a longer list, but what would be the, if, if you are to, to implement the one, last final thing for a basic must-have operating model, what would it be? So we have methodology, we have best practices, we have documentation. What is number four? The, the internal alignment, so that everybody is on board and understands the journey. Yeah, people. So yeah. it is alignment uh, and, and stay. Okay, this is this is a great point. All right. So we have a basic, b basic, and I know that I I'm a little bit put put now the borders on it because I'm sure that there are definitely more than four. But out of basic, moving a little bit to middle, what would be the other three points you would add? So we have already four as a basic, and now we say this is this is surviving kit, and. But overall, it is also good to have 80-20. We are still not speaking about the rocket science and super fancy things. We already have methodology, best practices, documentation, and internal alignment. Now we are adding three more to say that now from the starter kit, you are in more or less like confident level to, to say that 80-20, we handle everything. So what would be the other three points you would add for uh, middle, middle level? This is so basic, yeah, that we start, we can develop now. If we're talking about the middle ground, right, we now need to start to think about the reporting, right, to have clear guiding principles and, and key elements, right, so have clear KPIs communicated, right? Yeah. Um, have a clear understanding of how to build the pipelines so or demand management. Yeah, good point, yeah. And now you have to also, I think, um, now really think about the governance, right? implement a real governance and i think this is all um sometimes a painful process but it's the one that, that, that is absolutely needed we are getting now seven and and i'm really um amazed and and, and surprised because the, the the all the things we are mentioning it it, it really 
builds the picture of this operating model as well as uh, it, it is still for me, maybe because of those borders I put, it is one of kind, if not must-haves, then very, very, very nice to have things. Okay, we have a basic, we have a middle level. I will just quickly read it out. And my following question would be, um, after, like before I read it out, so you, you have it still fresh in mind, would be what would be the things which are kind of advanced level and and you know like 80 20 principle you would co you would be covering this remaining 20 percent to make it ideal what quite often would cost you maybe more effort or something like that but what you whenever you see it in the company you say wow these guys had a clue what what the operating model is they invest a lot and they wanted to get it on advanced level sometimes it may be even like freaking out in 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 a good way that they think about maybe too much details etc so my question will be and then after question i would also read the seven points we have my question would be what you see as a not must have things but very nice and and often fancy things which make your operating model as well as center of excellence fancy and and uh, attractive you know that it is very advanced so this is the question and before you answer let me read back to you the seven points we have so on basic level we have methodology we have best practices we have documentation we have an internal alignment what means people behind it so everyone is aligned uh, of what is going to happen and how it, it is to be executed and used then on the middle ground we have reporting we have demand management and we have governance and now we are to add three more things if we have three, if we have one uh, or two, it's also fine. Things which makes it at once, which is not must have, which is not 80-20, uh, but this is the remaining 20, which make it close to perfect. This is, this is uh, kind of hard to, to really divide those up because in the end, everything is super important, right? But if you're talking about the really advanced stuff, then um, what we're, we have been talking about, the strategy and vision, this is always almost always something that comes on a little bit later, right? I said it should be there from the start, right? So, but I think this is always that comes a little bit later on, right? If we, if we really start out, then we should build it out in the beginning. But this is always something, and this is also something that is not that easily graspable, right? And maybe important here also to say is that you, on theory, you kind of must start with strategy and vision. But on practice, when you have one and a half robots running somehow and, and you are just starting the journey, it is quite hard to speak about the global enterprise scaling and how we would approach this and that regions and departments, etc. So I, it fully makes sense that theory here deviates from practice and quite often the vision builds and upgrades while while you are growing the, the the center of excellence okay so strategy and vision anything else yes um the like we talked about the 40 defined services this is always something that you need in, in the advanced model right when we're talking about the completely defined and built out support for the um, complete um yeah automation enterprise in the end right this is something right in the in the basic and in the middle you will have um, maybe sometimes even the ad hoc support, right? Where the business might call the developer or something like this, right? This is not something that is sustainable over over the time, right? And this is something that needs to be uh, needs to happen at some point. Yeah. So stable, stable and accessible support, which is more kind of rule and schedule based, but not ad hoc. Uh, developers will have a look when when they have time. 
Yeah. Exactly. This is something because this is also something that we see, right? And if a developer is maybe not there or whatever, this creates such a huge noise if a robot is not running for some reason or the other, right? Must, maybe it has not something to do with RPA, right? Maybe system is done or whatever. But if nobody's there to actually answer those questions, right? And you have not trained the, um, the business maybe to, to look it up for themselves, right? Or you have the reporting not in place, um, then this can get quite nasty. So this is this is at some point really really important to have in a place. One of the things you have mentioned <clears throat> before is importance of the driver of, of of this journey and importance of the key person. It is called also in terminology. It is called also the champion or RPA champion and also sponsor. So I think that this is also one of the key success factors. Uh, on the end of whole center of excellence implementation and RPA implementation. Um, and quite often what I observe is that you may believe that if you pay expensive services, you know, external or, or you find the best tool, you find the best uh, service provider and it will just get done. My question is how effective can the external services be if if you don't have the, the strong champion and if you can a little bit describe this role of champion and in importance of it because from and we are both from service delivery companies right we are both facing it on on a daily basis and for me it's super critical because even if you have the best practices in place you know how to scale you know how to set up the elastic inside orchestrator you can speak about rpa for hours but if you don't have a strong internal driver i think that you you can just you cannot utilize those things you are paying for maybe you share some experience about the project champion and project sponsor here as you may understand our episode is coming to the end the second part, which is to be published soon, will start with answer to just mentioned question. For now, if you enjoyed this episode, I would kindly ask you to hit subscribe button. Also, don't forget to visit automationimpact.io. There you can find more podcast-related materials. Cheers! <laughs>